welcome to BSA Today. I'm here with Miss Odian Welch and Miss Simone Saunders, and this is the very first episode of the Black History Month special, and we're very excited to have our two special guests here. So why don't we have you both just introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your story? All right. My name is Simone Saunders, and I am a registered social worker and therapist practicing in Calgary, Alberta. Um, And so my story in terms of how I got into the mental health field and all that kind of stuff was that I really wanted to do either psychology or social work, but really didn't know what to do. Um, And then eventually I decided social work just because of how many options there are. But in terms of really getting into the mental health space, I noticed, you know, my friends and my family and my close loved ones struggling with their mental health. And there's, of course, been times where I've had mental health struggles too. And I noticed that there wasn't necessarily a lot of um, Black representation or people of color within the mental health field. So that was something that was important to me in order to provide that representation. And it's become a passion of mine, not only to provide that representation, but eventually to provide opportunities for other racialized students in the future who are interested in that mental health um, stream, career stream, in order to um, provide opportunities and safe spaces for them to learn about it and pursue that career opportunity. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Ms. Welch, would you like to tell us a bit about your story? Thanks, Tony. Before I start, though, Simone also is the magical creator behind the Cognitive Corner. So for all yes. of those on Instagram, make sure you follow because it is amazing. Um, but my name is Odian Welch. If you've heard my name before and you're in Edmonton, it is because I am the mental health youth coordinator at the Africa Center. And when I'm not doing that, I am actually going to be graduating from my master's this year. Yeah, super exciting. (laughs) Um, And I've also been known to, uh, so this year I actually received Edify, Edmonton Edify's 2021 Community Builder of the Year. And last year I received Athabasca's Rising Star Alumni Award because of the work that I do in mental health. And uh, mental health is very important to me because as a student, even I did some time at SCONA, I like to joke, I really struggled with my mental health and I struggled with my identity being mixed race and not knowing how to navigate that and deal with all the pressures. And through lots of spiraling, which is a known term, um, I ended up getting help for my mental health and realizing how important it was to have culturally safe spaces and accessible resources for the various intersections that we can have as females. And that's why I am in mental health. Thank you for that. Um, That's a really amazing story. And we're glad to hear that you're able to take the steps to seek help for stuff like that. Um, Let's get started with the first few questions. Um, I know, Ms. Saunders, you already answered this a little bit, but I want to know what inspired you both to get into mental health. Yeah, um, I think really it was just noticing the gap in between uh, kind of how Odian talked about that cultural responsiveness and the ability for people of color to see themselves in this space. So I think it was a lot of that and also noticing um, just how interesting for myself, at least it was to understand about what goes on in the brain and how experiences really impact you and how your mental health really plays with your physical health as well. Yeah. And to add on to that, for me too, it was a lot about relatability. So many resources that existed, um, we'll just say a few years back, so I don't age myself, weren't (laughs) relatable or tangible. And they were so convoluted in the sense that you didn't understand what they were, how they related to you. And when you are from different cultural opportunities, 
there's different like traumas that can exist, which Simone can talk more about, and different pressures that can affect your mental health. And so if those aren't talked about, you're kind of stuck feeling on an island and floating. And that's why it was really important to me. It was like, how do we make this relatable and understanding? Great. This next question is for you, Ms. Saunders. What are the effects of generational trauma in a system where systemic racism is present on mental health? Yeah, I think that's a huge question. Um, So systemic racism has been present for pretty much as long as we know it, right? And so the impact that systemic systemic, uh, racism has on the individual um, is huge, right? So people of color, racialized individuals, um, as a lot of us know, often have fewer opportunities. Um, they There's a disparity in wage, all of that kind of stuff. So experiencing systemic racism ha- increases your likelihood um, of being low socioeconomic status, which then increases your likelihood of your risk of dysfunction in the household. So that could look like domestic violence, that could look like incarceration, um, and all of those kind of adverse childhood experiences. So when we think of adverse childhood experiences, really what we're talking about is toxic stress, right? So toxic stress during um, development, so between the ages of zero and typically 18 years old. And So if parents who have been through uh, systemic and individual racism, um, and then perhaps they all are also of low socioeconomic status, then perhaps they also have those other risks of household dysfunction, right? And then those um, household dysfunction pieces or those toxic stress pieces carries down to the children and it just creates a cycle that repeats itself. Great. Um, I have a follow-up question for that. So with the mental health issues from generational trauma, like what type forms of mental disorders are we kind of like most likely going to see in situations like that? Yeah, a lot of them are typically around emotional dysregulation, right? So that could look like attachment-based trauma where the parents or caregivers don't necessarily are, they aren't necessarily able to attune to the needs of their child or meet the needs of their child to the capacity that the child needs to, right? So when a child is not getting those needs met, then that creates a disruption in the attachment system, which later on, um, when you're an adult or when you're, you know, a teenager, all of that kind of stuff, then it creates disruption in your other relationships because your your relationship with your parents or your caregivers is kind of your blueprint for your relationship with everybody else. So if that one is unstable, then that just spreads out to every other relationship. So typically it's a lot around emotional dysregulation. It's a lot around um, hypervigilance, which is really just that feeling of not being safe and having to kind of watch or um, walking on eggshells all the time. Thank you. Um, This next question is also for you. What are the effects of generational trauma in family relations on mental health? So the impact of intergenerational trauma on your family relationships? Yes. Okay. Um, Yeah, I think that intergenerational trauma, like we talked about, kind of spreads down to um, all of the family members, right? And so typically that that can create tension within the household. And again, that attachment disruption 
that can seen be seen between parent and child that can be seen between siblings as well so if you know the parents or the caregivers aren't able to effectively regulate themselves or teach their children to regulate their own emotions then that causes dysregulation throughout the household and everyone deals with dysregulation differently so that doesn't necessarily mean lots of shouting and screaming that could just mean um, you know stonewalling so not being able to talk about any of those emotions that could just mean emotional suppression so you might see a lot of in a lot of uh, racialized families you'll, you might see that emotions aren't something that is typically talked about a lot and if they are talked about it's typically the ones that are easier to express because they push people away so anger anger is a big one that we see a lot in racialized communities because it's an easier emotion to express um, and there's not that necessarily vulnerability part of it and so typically I see the oscillation between the two. So it's either extreme dysregulation in an outward motion or an inward motion. Thank you. I have a follow-up question for that one too. So with what you said about racialized like communities not being able to necessarily be vulnerable, do you think that has something to do with the way society is viewing certain racialized communities like such as the Black community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that as a, and speaking about the black community in general, I think that there's been this societal view, not only inside the community, the black community, but outside of the black community that, um, you know, black people are these strong people, right? Which means that they don't get affected by life's challenges or any adversity. And so that rhetoric has kind of seeped into the community as well. So if you're not, if you're perceived as strong, that means that you don't show those vulnerable emotions, that you don't show when you're struggling, that you don't reach out for help. And when you don't reach out for help, it doesn't mean that those things necessarily go away, right? So if you think of if you broke your leg and you just pretend it's not broken, that doesn't mean it's not broken anymore. It just means that that leg continues to deteriorate until you decide to get help for it. Right. I totally agree. And can I add on quick to that, Simone? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So I love how you said the black don't crack. Um, we did some work last year on how there's that black don't crack in regards to imagery, right? Where black people will look a lot younger than they are. And we embrace that. But our mental health can crack. And so we want to keep on the strong image. And while you were talking, I thought of the movie Encanto. And I'm not sure if everybody's watched that new Disney movie, but it does a really good job of showing um, intergenerational trauma in a fun way because the grandmother, have you seen it yet, Simone? No, I haven't. Okay. But so good. I hysterically cried last night when I was watching it. Um, so this is a high of my mind. But the grandmother was escaping like war torn countries kind of thing. And they re received a gift, not going to ruin for everybody, but everybody was working extra hard to be perfect and create this lifestyle that the grandmother didn't realize she was putting on the generations that existed to look and be a certain way that would hopefully ensure that they wouldn't have to go through that trauma again. And so one of the characters is a very strong female. So shout out to Disney for showing that girls can lift. But she always felt weak because the grandma always wanted her to be stronger. And so we can talk about intergenerational trauma in the sense of what it's doing to our DNA, but sometimes it's our relations or the expectations that we're putting on ourselves so that the previous generations can feel stronger or safe. And we don't even know it's happening. 
I like to call it like the Pleasantville because I was raised in the sense that like you don't tell anybody anything's happening. You know, we have to do this. Don't crack. Don't sh like thing. But that's something that can really exist. So as much as intergenerational trauma is the disillusionment, sometimes it's or the dysregulation. It's how we're acting and the ways that we're showcasing things is another way to think about it. Mm -hmm. And just to uh, piggyback off what you said, Odian, too, um, I think that something that you said quickly was around like that safety around, um, you know, ensuring that this trauma doesn't happen again. And I think that that's a really important way to look at trauma is that typically the symptoms that come out of trauma are there because they are trying to protect you in some capacity from feeling whatever adversity it was that either you felt or your parents felt. And so although these symptoms come out and they're um, unhelpful and they can sometimes be damaging or harmful to relationships, I always try to look at things like their overdeveloped coping skills. So when you look at why these behaviors exist in the first place, then it's easier to look back and say, okay, what can I do in replacement of that that's more helpful for me? Mm -hmm. You did a really good job of that. Was it last week you did a post on TikTok and Instagram about hyper-independence? Yeah. Was that? Okay, actually. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. I'm ahead of the game. <laughs> Can you explain that to them really quick? Is it okay if we kind of change directions, Tony? Because I think this is a great example for us to share. Yeah, that's okay. totally okay. Okay, so help them explain hyper-independence and I'll add on in my fun, quirky way. Yeah, absolutely. So hyper-independence is kind of this drive to need no one. So a lot of times people get confused between the difference between independence and hyper-independence. So independence is just the ability to be self-sufficient, right? And we all need that skill. But hyper-independence is usually born out of the fear of relying on other people, whether it's, it hasn't been safe to in childhood or in general. Um, and so you feel like you don't want to have to need anybody. And so it drives you to do everything on your own. But we are also human, right? And so we need social connection. We need to be able to rely on others. So eventually in relationships, that hyper-independence is, you know, going to cause problems in relationships. And going back to trauma and all that kind of stuff, those that is something that develops out of a need, right? So if you can't rely on your caregivers, for example, and as a child, we're thinking, okay, survival here. So if you can't rely on your parents, then you have to rely on yourself. And when that um, overdeveloped coping skill, as I talked about, develops into adulthood, it's because you don't want to have to go back to that place where you're dependent on someone and you don't get those needs met. Mm -hmm. the, I feel like I was a lived example of Simone when she talks about this, because growing up due to addiction, I wasn't able to get a lot of that caregiver stuff. And I became very much like, I can do this on my own. And so as an adult, I've really had to learn it's okay to accept help and know that help doesn't come with a you owe me, right? Because it it was a relationship of to kind of get love, you had to do something to get love. So it was like, well, I, if I can just do it on my own, I don't want your help. So even accepting a gift can become an issue when you become hyper-independent because you don't know if this gift has expectations with it and the gift also means it's something you just didn't do for yourself. So you don't know you can't control that. So it becomes a control scenario, which can be very good in your career and has been very good in my career, but it can make it harder on relationships for people who 
might not want to stay or understand why you might be like closed off or you might get weird when they want to give you something. Thank you both for that. Our next question is, what are some mental health stereotypes pertaining to gender and Black men? Ooh, that's a, such a good one. Simona, can I take that one first? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So um, when we opened our counseling clinic, so uh, I was one of the brainchilds behind the Western Canada's first free Black-focused counseling clinic. When we were first reaching out to men and people in the community and getting them to talk about it, we would hear comments like, well, you may as well just castrate my balls. And we're like, what? That, the idea of talking about mental health. And it's because men are encouraged to always like be strong and that seeking help and that hyper-independence that we just talked about can show up. And that stigma is huge. And then you throw in that in certain Black communities, there isn't even a word for mental health. The word is just crazy or that's it. And so now you've got this, they want to provide, they might not have a word for it in their language. And then you throw in intergenerational stuff. And that alone is a kit and caboodle for men to want to have a wall up against seeking mental health resources. Throwing it to you, Simone, now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the fact that you touched on the fact that in some places there isn't even words for that right and it's just seen as if you're not doing well if you're struggling with your mental health you're just crazy right but I mean I think going back to those stereotypes I think earlier in our conversation we talked a lot about that strong black person rhetoric right and so that has been very relevant for men especially right so if you're a black man and you show vulnerability what does that mean about you right Mm -hmm. so a lot of times in theory People might want to see that vulnerability, but then when they do, it's like, oh, well, like you're not, you're not, you're pretty weak. You're this, you're that. Can you actually be a leader? Right. And so I think that there's um, often you're um, stuck in a rock in a hard place because we want black men to be able to show vulnerability and to show up and um, acknowledge when they're struggling and acknowledge these challenges. But then a lot of times when they do, then there's this pushback. Of like, okay, that's too much vulnerability. Oh, I was going to say, even though like Brene Brown, I love her, mm-hmm. all of her studies showcase that when we are vulnerable and we express our emotions, that's actually the stronger humans and the ones that are the most resilient and that can handle challenges. Mm-hmm. And so they have to overcome that. And then when you were saying, you were talking about something and it made me remember the phrase, and I heard this growing up too, is that you're in Canada. What do you have to be upset about? Mm-hmm. Right? So- mm-hmm. You have these, like, we can talk about the whole DNA that exists in men, you know, be strong, be fighters, fight or fight. And then when they do open up to be vulnerable, the response they get is this very shutting down response that causes them to feel guilt. So that is something that we all have to work. I think it's not something that can be stopped every day, but we have to work on acknowledging it within our communities when we hear someone say something like that, because There are a lot of reasons to be emotionally unwell or unhealthy. Mm -hmm. And I think it starts at a young age, too. So being able to raise children now um, and raise black boys saying, like, it's okay to be sad about that. You don't Mm -hmm. have to, oh, just suck it up. Oh, just man up. Uh, Don't cry. It's okay to be sad about things. It's okay to cry about things. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay to feel not confident. All of those things. I totally agree. To kind of segue on to Miss Welch's comment about culture and mental health within different cultures. A question for you is, how do certain cultures view mental health and its different effects? 
So when it comes to cultures, it's huge. And one of the biggest things I ask people to learn about in Black History Month is that Africa is just not one place. There is either 50 or 52 countries. There's over 120 languages within that. And so when you put that in, there's tons of ways of showing cultural diversity. And then you look at the Caribbean and you look at Spanish and now you look at mixed race. And so culturally, everyone's expectations are slightly different. So for example, when you look at the Caribbean community, especially in Barbados, in the 60s, there was a huge push for them to become nurses and actually mental health nurses in that British area. So you'll have a lot of um, Caribbean families that are more open to the mental health discussion because it's something that has been created over the last 50 years. But then when you look at different areas of Africa, if you're looking at an area that's gone through like genocide or war, then they're just in survival mode, regardless if that happened 20 years ago, 40 years ago, or 50 years ago. And so now you've got that. And then you have those like expectations that exist. And there's so many things that influence it. Um, classism can be one that affects cultural relations. Uh, I feel like classism alone is the biggest ones. And then like there's sexism in regards to the female responsibilities and the male responsibilities and that emotional thing, because in communities that are very matriarchal, you have the opposite. So women are not supposed to express their emotions and be strong. And there's all these layers. And until we understand what those layers are and take the time, we might not know why a culture, even though it's black, embraces mental health or is against mental health. And then when we go back to the thing about languages, there are so many various Black languages that do not have a word to this day for preventative mental health, actual mental health, and anxiety, depression, because they've been in fight and flight for so long. Simone, do you want to add on to that? Yeah, um, I think something that just came to mind as well when you were talking was around awareness versus action. And so I think that there's a lot of maybe Black communities that may be aware of mental health and perhaps subscribe to it as well. But also there can be that disconnection of that is something that exists and is true and is valid, but not in our house. Mm-hmm. So you might find there might be a lot of people, for example, um, working in psychiatric care or in mental health or what have you, but then go home and that's not, that's my work and I believe it and that's true, but that doesn't happen in our house. Mm-hmm. And speaking of home too, there's things like culture, like when we look at mental health has been very colonized in some ways. And so things that exist to keep us healthy, um, we don't look at from other cultural point of view. So one, for example, is food. When you look at the Canada Food Guide on like eating healthy, because it's proven that eating healthy is good for your brain, it is very, I'm going to say Caucasian based foods. And the reason I say that is because you aren't seeing like grits on there. You're not seeing rice and beans on there. Um, I love plantain, which is my go-to. And all those foods have great healthy qualities that can help you have good brain health and good overall health, but they're not displayed on this food wheel. So then there becomes that disconnect as well culturally, like, oh, well, if I'm just going to use kale as an example. If if eating kale is going to help you have good health, well, we don't eat kale, so it's apparently never going to be our problem. And so there's this disconnect that happens sometimes when the resources are colonized in some way. Now I'm okay. going to ask you some morning on what's your favorite food that's not on the wheel, but healthy. Oh, um, I really like rice and peas. I don't know if that's on the wheel technically, but like, the I don't know. It's even like roti. Like roti is actually a very healthy bread. Yeah. 
and it's filled with protein. And, you know, it's a great after gym food, but we don't talk about that. And that's something where you can feel identity wise that you might want to embrace your culture, but you want to be healthy. So how do you do that? And there's so many ways, but there's not the resources available to show people how to do that. And that's things that me and Simone try to do. And a lot of great people across Canada are working towards. Thank you so much, Ms. Saunders and Ms. Welch, for your very informative conversation today. We're going to cut it off there. You can tune in for the rest of this conversation in part two.